This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. This week's episode is brought to you in part by The Spark. Ever wondered what inspires someone to make a difference through their work? What gets someone's neurons zapping during the nine to five? The Spark is a new podcast about inspiration, innovation, and the mind at work, as told by Philip's employees. Whether it's sneaking out of cancer wards or experimenting with laser-guided breathalyzers, no idea is too big or too small. The Spark, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 6, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, online news editor David Grimm is here with a story on how special crystals may have helped Viking seafarers navigate the ocean. And Dana Stoff, a freelance science writer and marine biologist, brings a story on octopus anesthesia. Can we tell if a cephalopod is merely paralyzed but still feeling things or if it's completely knocked out? Now we have David Grimm, online editor for Science. He's here to talk about how Vikings may have used crystals to navigate. Hi, Dave. Hi, Sarah. And it's not crystals. It's legendary sunstones. <laughs> well, just to really, yeah, you really got to get that in the headline. Um, so this story is by Sid Perkins, and it has so many fun ingredients. As you mentioned, sunstones, legendary crystals, Vikings, early ocean navigation. So let's start with these so-called crystals, sunstones, what have you. Where does this idea come from that they might have helped with seafaring? Well, you know, Vikings have this well-earned reputation as these amazing seafarers. They would travel thousands of kilometers over sea from their colonies in Iceland and Greenland, and they didn't have compasses. So, you know, these were very dangerous journeys. They were often bad weather, heavy clouds and fog. The question is, how did they figure out where they were going? And there's been this theory that they used something called a sunstone, which is basically, and it's mentioned, one thing you forgot to mention, what's cool about the story is the mention of the saga of King Olaf, <laughs> oh. which is uh, one of the Viking tales. And it mentions the use of these sunstone-like things. And the idea would be that even if the skies were very cloudy, 
the sunstones would somehow allow the Vikings to track the sun and therefore be able to navigate by it and get where they're going safely. But there haven't been any of these sunstones found, at least in in, in Viking archaeology. So there's no there's no archaeological evidence for sunstones. So there's nothing in a Viking that's been found in Viking shipwrecks. There was a whitish crystal found near other navigational aids in a 16th century English shipwreck. And the idea was, well, maybe the English adopted this technology from the Vikings. You know, they were sailing a lot of the same waters. But that's really the only evidence we have, and it's pretty indirect. How is a crystal going to help you, like, figure out where you are on the face of the Earth? Well, so some crystals can actually split sunlight into a couple of images. And the idea is that if you look at the sky through this type of crystal and then rotate it so the images are equally bright, it's possible to spot the rings of polarized light that surround the sun, even in your under cloudy skies. And this, again, would give you a way to sort of track your position and be able to figure out where you're going. And so there's research here. We're getting through the history. We're getting (laughs) through the basic facts and we're getting to the research. So how what did researchers do to kind of see how possible this was? Well, what they did was they used some mathematical modeling and they basically did computer simulations of voyages between Norway and the Viking settlement of Hvarf <laughs> in okay. Greenland and the southeast of coast of Greenland. This voyage is a straight shot westward, probably take about three weeks of daytime sailing in a typical Viking ship. And the question is, you know, if the researchers simulated things like cloudy skies and the use of sunstones, would that help these theoretical ship get there faster, safer, and more accurately than if the ships did not use sunstones? So they moved the variables, they changed the variables they changed were how cloudy it was and, you know, how often they they used a sunstone or or using sunstones at all. Yeah, you know, they were using the sunstone, you know, every three hours, every four hours, every five to six hours, whether they used it more in the morning or in the afternoon, things like that. And what, what did they find when they looked at all those when they looked across those variables? Well, basically found that when these hypothetical seafarers took readings about every three hours or less, these ships made landfall between 92 and 100 percent of the time. Now, if they used it four hours or less frequently than that, the ships only made landfall between 32 and 59 percent of the time. So that's a lot of lost ships. And why not just look at it every hour on the hour? Well, there's actually a science to this. You can't, it's not just about how frequently you do it. It's also about when you do it. So for example, the the team found in their simulations that morning readings caused a ship to veer too far northward and afternoon readings can cause a ship to veer too far southward. And if that was the case, this ship would miss Greenland altogether. So it's a question of, it's an art and it's a bit of a science too. It's a question of using the crystals at just the right time, at just the right intervals for a successful journey. Going back to these crystals one more time, what are they made of? Is this a material that, you know, is hard to come by? How mysterious and mystical are the crystals? They're they're not so mysterious. They they looked at three different crystals, all of which basically had the same results. There was calcite, which is a form of calcium carbonate. There was cordite, which is a sort of an iron and magnesium-rich silicate. And then there was tourmaline, which is a boron-rich silicate. So if you're a geologist, those, probably, those words probably mean more to you. But, you know, there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was anything particularly special about the crystal. It was just a crystal that could have this property of sort of splitting the beams in sunlight. All right, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a swarm of black holes that may be lurking in the center of the Milky Way galaxy. That's our galaxy. Also a story about clinical trials reporting and what can be done to improve it. 
for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a one-year update on the March for Science. Hard to believe it's already been a year. Where the movement stands now and how it has changed shape and possibly mission. Also a story about why scientists are boycotting a South Korean university. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the online news editor for Science. You can find this story at sciencemag.org slash news. Stay tuned for Dana Stoff. She talks about research into squid and octopus anesthesia. The Science Magazine podcast is sponsored in part by The Art of Naming by Michael Ohl, published by the MIT Press. Did you know there are species named after Harry Potter's Dementors, Beyonce, and David Bowie? Behind each act of scientific naming is a story. In this entertaining and illuminating book, Ole considers scientific naming as a joyful and creative act. There are about 1.8 million discovered and named plant and animal species, and millions more still to be discovered. Naming is a necessary next step after discovery. It's through the naming of species that we perceive and understand nature. This book takes us on a surprising and fascinating journey in the footsteps of the discoverers of species and the authors of names, into the nooks and crannies, drawers and cabinets of museums, and through the natural world of named and not yet named species. Buy The Art of Naming at mitpress.mit.edu slash science. That's mitpress.mit.edu slash science. This show is brought to you in part by Bill Nye, the science guy on PBS. Coming to PBS Wednesday, April 18th at 10, 9 central, the new documentary, Bill Nye, Science Guy, with an exclusive and behind-the-scenes look at Bill's journey from kids show host to Syrian science statesman, as well as intimate access to his personal life and insights from friends like Neil deGrasse Tyson. You'll get to know the man behind the bow tie. After all, since the Science Guy show, Bill has moved on to bigger challenges. He's talking to adults and raising awareness on climate change, its implications, and how to address them. Along with his advocacy for space exploration, he continues to champion the importance of scientific literacy and critical thinking for the next generation. Bill Nye, Science Guy, is about a man on a mission to make science matter and change the world. It's the show The Washington Post calls an absorbing and entertaining portrait. Don't miss Bill Nye, Science Guy. Premieres Wednesday, April 18th at 10, 9 central, only on PBS. Now we have Dana Stoff. She wrote a story this week about octopus anesthesia for the magazine. Welcome, Dana. Thank you for having me. The question being asked here is, does anesthesia work on cephalopods, squid and octopus specifically? Why were people wondering about this? Well, it's an interesting topic because scientists have been anesthetizing cephalopods for decades, primarily to immobilize them for research procedures. They're really active animals. It only just came up fairly recently as more awareness was spreading both throughout the scientific community and throughout the general public about these animals' kind of advanced behavior and intelligence that uh, the scientists started to wonder, hey, are our anesthetics really working the way we want them to? So the animal's also not feeling the pain. 
and not just immobilized. Right. So not just still, but also, you know, unfeeling. Exactly. And I think it was something that a lot of people had not even really considered. I know, to be honest, I hadn't considered it until until I was talking with one of these researchers. And she said, you know, there are a lot of drugs that are used even in vertebrates that are only paralytic. They'll immobilize you, but you will still feel everything. Carare is a classic example of that. And so when researchers or doctors use those drugs, they use them in combination with true anesthetics that also knock you out and get rid of the pain. And that's vertebrates. So we know a lot more about how these kinds of things work in animals that are more like us. Is, is, is there right. a bigger mystery about what's going on with cephalopods? Exactly. Yeah, this stuff has been super well studied in vertebrates, in you know, in mouse model systems, in people, obviously. Um, but even in something like a zebrafish, its nervous system, which is what's receiving pain signals and controlling awareness and consciousness, it's so similar to ours and to a mouse's. Like all vertebrates are pretty well understood in the way what kind of anesthetic can you use, what does it do, how does it work. And a cephalopod's nervous system, a squid's or an octopus's nervous system, is so fundamentally different because it evolved independently. Mm -hmm. And that's actually been a pretty important part of their history in the, their use in research. Can you talk a little bit about that? Exactly. Yeah. Part of what makes cephalopods such interesting systems to work on is that that convergent evolution of a system that is in some ways superficially similar to ours, similar to vertebrates. The cephalopod eye is the classic example. They have eyes that are remarkably similar to a vertebrates. They have lenses, they have corneas, they have everything, like all of the same similar structures and abilities to process vision, but it evolved, they evolved from blind ancestors. We evolved from blind ancestors. Those eyes were not related. <laughs> okay, so let's get into uh, the research that was done here, actually, that was done actually to figure out how anesthetics were working on cephalopods. How, how can you find out whether or not a cephalopod, a squid, is feeling something rather than just not reacting? That is such a good question. And it's something that the biologist Robin Crook at San Francisco State University has been working on for a number of years is this idea of sensation and response to stimuli in cephalopods. And, and how do you tell what they're really feeling versus what they're just doing and what their behaviors might mean about what's actually happening in their brains. And so she has this whole neurophysiological setup to actually look at what nerve signals are passing into the brain and out of the brain. And that's what she used, she and her students used to tackle this question of whether anesthetics are working, how they're working. And when they, they administered several different ones, did they see a difference between them that some were working better than others? That's right. Each one seemed to work a little bit differently. And so the, the technique, which was itself novel for this study, is that they found there's a nerve, almost a loose nerve inside the mantle cavity, inside the, the opening of a cephalopod's body that you can just hook an electrode on without needing to make a big surgical incision or anything. It's just hanging out okay. there. Uh, so, <laughs> so it was very convenient for them. They Kirk and her students were able to just hook electrodes on to these live animals without doing any kind of invasive procedure and then get signals, nerve signals right away. 
as they were administering anesthesia, recovering from anesthesia, seeing what happened. And yet each drug that they used, it played out a bit differently. But the big take home is that the two main anesthetic drugs that scientists have already been using are ethanol and magnesium chloride. And they're pretty cheap, they're easy to get, they're easy to work with, and they immobilize the animals. And it turns out that they both also remove sensation and consciousness. Right. So that means that they work. And so is there yeah. anything that people who do research with these kinds of animals should be thinking about going forward? The ethanol, once it's administered, the animals seem kind of agitated. The material seems to not feel really good on their skin, which one of the scientists that I spoke to in Italy, Ferita, pointed out that, you know, we don't wash our hands in ethanol or put it on our faces or anything. So it's going to be a little uncomfortable. But pretty quickly after that, it proceeds to have this anesthetic action where the animal both physically loses responsiveness. So it becomes limp. It doesn't respond if you touch it. And the nerve signals disappear as well, showing that the brain is not receiving Mm. signals of sensation. And that happens at the same time as the loss of physical responsiveness. So once you've, you've got an animal anesthetized with ethanol, once it's physically unresponsive, you can say, okay, I know now that it's also truly anesthetized and I can go ahead and do my procedure. And that's, that's ethanol. What about the other chemical that you mentioned? So magnesium chloride also works really well at removing those nerve signals, but it happens about 15 minutes after the physical responses oh. disappear. So those animals that get anesthetized in magnesium chloride, they have this lag time, this response window where physically they're not responding. You could poke them and they won't do anything. They're totally limp, but their brain is still receiving sensation for another 15 minutes, give or take. And so it's a vulnerable state where it's important for scientists to know, okay, I need to wait to do my procedure until the anesthetic has truly taken effect. One thing you pointed out in your article was that there are regulations about how these animals can be used in research, and they differ from country to country. Can you talk a little bit about you know, the history of that and, and some of what's different between, I think it's the U.S. and Europe? That's right. And it's absolutely fascinating because until the 1990s, Cephalopods had no regulatory oversight at all. Just like Drosophila or nematodes or any other invertebrate, any other creature without a backbone, they had no legal oversight. So scientists didn't have to pass the research by any sort of ethical bodies, any animal welfare committees before doing it. And then starting in the 1990s, a few countries started passing regulations. Canada was the first in 1991. And then the UK actually protected just one species, which is octopus vulgaris, and it's because a very famous scientist named Jay-Z Young was trying to turn that species into a model organism. And if that took off, he wanted to make sure it was protected. And then a few years later, New Zealand passed some legislation, a few states in Australia, a few years later, one or two countries in Europe. But it was in 2013 that this directive across the entire EU took effect, requiring scientists to adhere to the same standards for vertebrate care Okay, with their experiments on cephalopods. Very interesting. And that was the biggest impact. That's the EU. We've talked about New Zealand. What about the U.S.? Is there any regulation here on the use of cephalopods? And might there be anytime soon? There is currently no regulation. Robin Kirk had an interesting comment. She's actually an Australian immigrant to the U.S. And she said, as a 
international person, she feels that the U.S. is extremely regulation averse <laughs> by contrast. And so there's there's absolutely no regulation currently of cephalopods. That said, most researchers are already using these anesthetics that are now found to be functional. And a lot of individual researchers do choose to adhere to the guidelines for ethical use of laboratory animals that have been produced in, co- in collaboration with with researchers in other countries that do have regulations. And what kind of research do people do these days with cephalopods like octopuses or squid? There have been a number of really exciting fields that have been finding things out from cephalopods. One of them is, as I mentioned earlier, the comparative neurophysiology. Like, this is how brains and nerves evolved in vertebrates. How did they evolve in octopuses? And what can we learn from that about the different ways that evolution can make a brain, can make advanced behavior. And then there is also studies into the regenerative abilities of these animals because they can regenerate lost arms, including growing new nerves, which has a lot of potential for biomedical applications. And at the same time, their ecology is really interesting, their relationships with other animals. And in particular, there's a a very cute little squid called the bobtail Mm -hmm. squid that has symbiotic bacteria that make light for it. It has a glowing light organ that's all made by these symbiotic bacteria. And that's become a model system in studies of symbiosis and host microbe interactions. It's become a really active area of research. All right. Thank you so much, Dana. Thank you. Dana Staff is a science writer, marine biologist, and author of Squid Empire, The Rise and Fall of the Cephalopods. She writes about octopus anesthesia this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site at sciencemag.org slash podcast, where you can find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.